Thank you very much. Um, hey, family, uh, I'm an alcoholic and an addict, and my problem is Marsha. And uh, welcome to the uh, um, Let's Talk About Sex Baby, uh, part two. Um, so a little while ago, we had part one, and it was very successful. Um, I hear a lot in the meeting rooms. Um, you know, it'll the topic will be brought up here and there, and everybody always says, you know, that's a really important topic and we don't talk about it enough um, in the meetings. And so let's do that. Um, so if there's anybody here who feels that sex should not be talked about in meetings, um, bye. <laughs> Please go have a conversation with your sponsor and um, and everything will be OK because um, we're going to talk about it here. You know, um, the first part was amazing um, for those who have who came to the first part. Just know that I have not been able to been, be in a grocery store and look at a cucumber without breaking out into laughter again. And if you don't know what I mean, I will put the link to part one in the chat and y'all can listen to that and cucumbers. Okay, um, so so um, I've had a lot of conversations with different people about different things. I'm a pretty open person, I'm open book. Um, so, I mean, I've talked, I've had conversations with um, the men and the women and, you know, topics come up, you know, I don't know what to do and I, I'm, 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 I'm masturbating so much that I don't know. I think I'm going to go blind, you know, guys talk about, you know, they can't get it up and some of them can't get it down and they don't know what to do with it. Well, even if they could get it up or down and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, and then there's, you know, other parts of, of this topic that can be quite sensitive. So before I introduce the speakers uh, that we have for today. Um, I want to remind everybody that um, you are in a safe space. This is a safe space, right? Um, you might hear something that might set you off. It might trigger you. Please make sure that you have um, your tools available to you. Um, have somebody that you can reach out to, somebody that you can call. Um, please don't walk away from this um, feeling um, like unsafe or anything like that. Um, so uh, with that being said, um, yes, I thank you all for being here and I'm going to thank uh, ahead of time our three 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 speakers and um yeah so let's talk about sex baby I've invited um Lyra D Joe C and um mustache Mike <laughs> to uh to come and share their experience um with this topic um and how it has affected them what they've done about it um their search for it or their rejection of it I don't think anybody's rejected it but hey you never know all right so Lyra, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for being here and take it away. Thank you so much, Marsha. My name is Lyra uh, and my pronouns are she and her. I'm an alcoholic, an addict, and a codependent. And in case you missed my introduction, this is my lovely boyfriend, Matt. Hello. He's my emotional support, support boyfriend, so. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about sex. Uh, how do I qualify, first of all? So for those of you who have not already clocked me, I am a transgender woman. Uh, that means that I was born as a male. And uh, I have gone through various medical processes to become female. And um, it's wonderful. It's, it's the best thing ever. <laughs> Highly recommended. However, how does that play into sex? Um, sex and I go way back, back before gender was even really on my radar. Um, in fact, I often refer to it as my first love. Uh, sex was there for me before I even figured out about alcohol. I was having sex 
not uh, necessarily full-on repetitive penetrative sex, but I was having sexual adventures around the age of 13. Um, and I apologize in advance if anything that I says triggers anybody. I look forward to discussing the fallout with you. Um, as a 13-year-old, you have very, very limited scope of knowledge. And um, I, I got very mixed uh, ideas of what sex should look like, what intimacy should look like between other people. And um, it, it kind of reminds me of that scene. And I don't know if this is going to translate for our international audience at all. I'm, I'm an American. I apologize. Um, but we have this stupid comedy called uh, Walk Hard. And um, there's a quote from that where he, th there's this guy smoking reefer. And he's like, you don't want none of this, Ricky Bobby. This will change your life. You don't want none of this. He's trying to scare him away from it, but he's not doing a good job. He's like really selling him that like, this is the best shit. You want this shit. That's exactly what I was with sex. Give me an abusive boyfriend and tell me you don't want none of this, Lyra. He's gonna, he's gonna hurt you. He's gonna smack you around. He's not gonna let you feel good. You don't want none of this. I think I want some of this. I think I want it. So um sex once i learned that i could masturbate that's pretty much all i did because i didn't need anybody else for that um that only lasted me so long um around the age of 15 i was starting to get adventurous i uh i picked up this knowledge that uh cute boys i was a boy back then mind you petite nubile young boy I was informed that uh, boys could earn good cash online, uh, getting into chat rooms and, and turning on their webcams. And I did that. I did that at the tender age of 15, all the way up until I was 18. Um, I would not recommend it. So far, nobody has kicked in my door, but I'm just waiting for that SWAT team one day. Um, Around the age of 19, I found out that people would actually pay me to have sex with them. Wow, what a concept. Pay me for something that I fucking love. Nice. Uh, I didn't charge much. And I took this knowledge with me into college. I figured, you know, up until this point, all my encounters with men were fairly secretive um, behind closed doors not well-kept secrets, mind you. I worked at the only fucking gay bar. <clears throat> but uh, I thought, you know, this would be a good, good opportunity to spread my wings and fly. And so I hooked my way through college. Sometimes it was the only reason I ate. Um, but it was fun. It was adventurous. I learned so much. I learned so much in ways that nobody should have to learn. Um, but I learned. And when I left college behind, I tried to enter the real world. I tried to grow up. Well, 
That's when I found alcohol, but also alcohol said, that's not enough. We need to keep doing this sex thing. And I found out that certain drug dealers would trade pills for sex. And I rationalized in my brain, that makes sense because now what I'm doing isn't illegal. I'm not procuring drugs. I'm trading. I'm a barterer. I'm a thrifter. I'm a I'm a freaking middle-age trader. This is great. And I used that to my advantage until my addiction almost killed me. Um, on January 2nd, I will be celebrating five years free from the party life. And that was really hard fought. And it's, the sex has always been in the background. It's always been that elusive thing. Um, I got into sobriety in a relationship. So of course I was told, don't leave that relationship, stay in it. And the longer I did, the quicker I learned, this is not a healthy relationship. Shouldn't always listen to what other people tell you. Sometimes you gotta learn for yourself. And um, <clears throat> I broke that relationship off about halfway through my, my five, five years of sobriety. And um, I just figured I'm just gonna be celibate from now on. I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna touch it. I've, I'm used up, I'm a used up whore. I'm not gonna touch up, touch anybody or be touched by anybody. And um, I lived like that for, for about two and a half years. And, and something changed in me. Something woke up and said, you are loving, you are loved, you are lovable. Go out and seek it. Not seek it, not the way you have. No. Go out and be open to the idea, open to the concept. Um, how I make love has not changed much. I, it has, it always changes. Um, I haven't neglected the physicality of what I need and what my partner needs. Um, Sex is very important to me. It's very, very important to me. And um, <clears throat> I, I imagined a future where I would never have sex again, <clears throat> where it was so taboo that, uh, you know, it, it's going to ruin your spiritual conditioning. It's going to ruin your your sight of what's right and what's wrong is going to set you back on the path of a opiate whore. And I have found out that that is not necessarily the case. I'm allowed to love. I'm allowed to be loved. I'm allowed to share that love. And it has not become a crutch or a slip or a bargain that has caused me to slip into anything. Love is love and love can be communicated in many different ways. It doesn't always have to be sex. 
But sex is one of those things that relationships, I believe, are strongly built upon. And um, when I came across that, the tail end of that chapter that said, now let's talk about sex. And it gave me like three paragraphs where it just said, mm. I was livid. I said, I could write this section. And I think that's the point. We're supposed to write this section, each of us. We are supposed to define what healthy sex and a healthy relationship between humans looks like for us. Because what works for me is not necessarily going to work for you. But I'll tell you what works for me. Having someone who loves me unconditionally, regardless of what I do for him or to him. A man who respects my anatomy, my origin, my future, all parts of me. It's, it's magical. It makes a huge difference. That's what a healthy relationship looks like for me today. Filled with sex. Isn't that right, honey? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, he says. <clears throat> well, I want to share time with the rest of my uh, my speakers. So uh, I'll just let you know that you too can have wonderful sex with your partner. You too deserve love. You too are lovable, loving and capable of love. And you too can go to Olive Garden in this lovely sweater dress and then take your boy home and take him to Frisco town. So with that, I will share my time with Joe. <laughs> Thanks very much, Lyra. That was awesome. Joe C, hello. Welcome and uh, you're up. Hello, my name's Joe. I'm uh, someone in long-term recovery from all kinds of things. <laughs> um, uh, let's just uh, get into some uh, background. Uh, you know, if, if you don't know me, I'm someone who has been in and around uh, recovery uh, since the 70s. Um, I was a teenage uh, addict, alcoholic, and uh, um, I knew AA people. Uh, I wasn't the first member of my family to join AA. And so uh, like I, I sort of knew about recovery and it seemed really um, boring. It seemed kind of uh, uh, like a provisional life. Like, oh no, it'd be like, you know, like I would feel sad for a diabetic who couldn't eat as much chocolate cake as they wanted. I would feel sorry for um, a gambling addict that couldn't just, you know, whatever, buy lottery tickets or go to the casino or do whatever they want. I would feel sorry for uh, a drug addict or alcoholic who couldn't uh, party uh, like it's 1999 course, this was pre-1979 when that was a thing. <laughs> uh, back then, uh, we thought 
there would be no more internal combustion engine cars. And, um, but we didn't know about this phone thing. We <laughs> this, this is way better than the Dick Tracy stuff we saw. But uh, um, yeah, we, we had uh, an attitude about what the 21st century would look like. And, and even before I was exposed to, uh, or I got my hands on, because I always knew I would be interested in drugs and alcohol, uh, I, I remember actually in grade uh, seven, I, so I'm 12 years old, a couple of guys, one was a biker, I can't remember the other guy so much, but they were from Narcotics Anonymous and they came to talk to us 12 year olds about the perils of drug addiction. And the, while other people were shocked and uh, grossed out by what they were saying, it sounded romantic. It was like, where do I sign up? This, uh, you know, uh, verge of death lifestyle seemed, um, uh, it seemed like it would uh, be a, a rich, full life. And, and I, I was uh, turned on by the idea. And uh, before I found drugs and alcohol and sex addiction, I, I'm also, uh, there was a time where uh, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous was my primary fellowship that I was going to. Uh, just to deal with some of the things that I was trying to straighten out. Um, but before that, if I had any addiction at all, it was approval. I needed external uh, comfort. And, uh, and the, the biggest comfort I was looking for was uh, the approval of others. And so sex is one of the ways you can, you can get that or it has the promise of that. Um, uh, you know, be, being in with the in crowd, doing drugs has uh, the promise of that. Uh, a lot of the things I did uh, were in themselves, you know, uh, physical, mental, emotional addictions, but at the root of it all, uh, there was this uh, boy who did not feel uh, worthy who was dependent on other people um, approving of me. And uh, because of that, you develop a fairly flexible uh, morality. I, I didn't even know what my value system was until long into my sobriety, because um, you can't be a teenage alcoholic without being uh, and a bit of an actor uh, without being a bit of a liar. You can't walk into a bar and say, I'm really thirsty, I'm only 15, can we work something out? You have to act like you own the place or you know the person who does and they better get you what you want fast or they're in big trouble. I mean, you just have to play the role, right? You know, um, the first time I had drugs, I acted like I was the dealer first time I had sex, I acted, uh, in fact, I might've told my partner that I'd done this seven other times. And uh, she believed me until we got started. 
and the truth became painfully obvious. But you know, you know, this is teenage sex, right? Uh, I was uh, like having intercourse by the time I was fourteen. I remember having a fourteen-year-old son and looking at him and going, "He is way, way too young for that." Like he does not have the emotional fortitude for uh, what that brings. No way. And then it dawned on me, so was I, right? But we, I, I came from the generation of very limited adult supervision. So, uh, you know, the, the more we were gone, the happier adults seemed to be. And uh, um, yeah, so I, I, you know, just sort of learned as I went. So I, I found alcohol, I found drugs, that was easy to come by. Um, my parents both read Playboy. My mom swears it was the science fiction that interested her. Um, my dad was more uh, uh, obvious about it, uh, but th they weren't gauche about it. They just, they were, um, you know, sort of uh, urban, uh, modern people, right? You know, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, they were, you know, educated and they were sophisticated and um, uh, they smoked drugs, too, because it was uh, in the 60s and 70s. That's what people in the suburbs of Montreal did. And um, so it, there was always uh, unsupervised alcohol uh, around. It was always easy to get a hold of it if not at my house, at my friend's house. And, um, you know, Playboy was around. And of course, you know, this really ages you, if you know, National Geographic. Yeah. <laughs> In a pinch, it'll do. Uh, but um, that's not important now. And um, so, uh, you know, I just was... You know, I look back and people tell me, Joe, you had everything going for you when you were young. Uh, you know, you were, they tell me I was popular. I didn't feel that. They tell me I was good looking. I did not feel that. I felt I was, I was treading water. I was swimming as hard as I could just to get to the middle of the pack. And uh, whether that's where I was or where I wasn't. I'll tell you my self-image was not of someone who had the world by the tail and could have whatever I wanted. Um, but uh, I was very uh, sexually active as a teenager. I was, uh, you know, heavily into drugs. My first recovery was in AA, some NA, but there wasn't much of it available to us at the time. But young people's AA in Montreal was uh, quite a vibrant community. And uh, they didn't really make a taboo about sex. All of the young people's conferences uh, talked about it. Um, I remember the whole morality of the 12 steps um, uh, impacted me. Because again, I wanted you, AA, to approve of me. So I was going to do all the stuff that, uh, um, you know, I thought was expected of me. And, and there seemed to be in the steps this idea that 
you know, there are parts of me that are bad that have to be, I have to transcend. And in fact, it's like having to transcend the human condition um, to not be lustful, to uh, uh, not act out. Um, you know, I, I don't see recovery as, as having a, a goal in recovery. I, I think it's, uh, I have a very individual problem uh, that has a lot in common with everybody else, of course, but you know, thumbprints look like they're all the same until you look more closely. And my addiction is that way. And I believe recovery is the same way. When you look in a group of peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, uh, recovery community type people, they all seem to nod at the same things. They all seem to have a lot in common. They all seem to follow the same uh, trajectory. Uh, but when you look closer, there aren't any two that have ever done it exactly the same way. Um, but this, this mischaracterization I had of that I was uh, flawed at my core and that had to be fixed or I would not be worthy um, was a real problem uh, in my going into my 20s and going into my 30s. So I was... Uh, see yeah that era was uh was a, a lot of fun just because the recovery community was much younger um it uh i, I think teenagers in alcoholics anonymous are one percent of the population i mean that's twenty thousand teenagers sober in aa now but um we were three percent uh of a smaller fellowship but but there there were never meetings without people in their teens and 20s there. And, um, and the, uh, it, it just seemed like it was going to be more and more so. And, and then I know those numbers started falling off. But so um, we would hang out together. We would sleep together. We would, uh, uh, you know, uh, tell our stories together. We would uh, stay up until uh, sunrise together. Uh, you know, youth sobriety isn't seeking serenity and uh, routine and, uh, you know, a good paying job and paying our taxes and being a good citizen. Uh, it, it was really, uh, let's party sober. Let's, let's, uh, there's still time for sex and rock and roll. And, uh, and our drug was music and our drug was caffeine and uh, um, our drug was, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a crazy making brain, which I definitely had. So I thought, I, I didn't see myself as a sex addict. I remember, you know, doing my first inventory. I, I could see that as a young child, before I was sober, I was bi-curious and homophobic. I would tell gay jokes just in the same way I would tell racist jokes as a 1970s kid trying to fit in with other, we saw it as, as victimless crimes. I do not feel the same way as I did then, but I have said things and done things that uh, I, I don't know if I should be ashamed of them, but I, I, would, uh, I, I would speak out against that now for sure. And so I, was, I could see that some people were homophobic. And so I had to behave a certain way. Some people were uh, 
uh, sexual adventurers and I would act a certain way around them. Uh, just like uh, when I was doing drugs, people who did hard drugs, you could talk a certain way that you couldn't talk with just your drinking buddies. So uh, even when I came to AA, I, very, I learned to say, my name's Joe and I'm an alcoholic, not because I admitted it and was accepting it and taking responsibility for it, but that's what uh, everybody else said. So I said it too. If you had said, uh, hi, I'm Marsha, I'm a unionized uh, pipe fitter, I would say, I would look right in your eye and say, my name's Joe, I'm a unionized pipe fitter. Oh, my tools are in the car. Do I need them? I didn't have a car, right? You know, it was just saying what I needed to say to fit in, right? Because I also knew that I was planning my escape in early recovery. I, I didn't really want to be sober or get sober. I wanted the plan B uh, to have all of the benefits of uh, uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll without the consequences. And um, I, while I was figuring that out, I was going to hang out here. And the wanting sobriety and the feeling at home in sobriety uh, came with time while I was uh, being uh, very inauthentic. Um, so now let's say here's a Joe C, 10 years sober, 26 years old, power of example. Uh, you know, by now I've uh, been chair of several different conference committees. I'm active in AA. Um, uh, I'm having my first uh, child. And shortly thereafter, I'm uh, also having sex with somebody else in the recovery community. It was like boy meets girl on AA campus. Uh, and I, like I was, I was behaving the way I did as a teenager uh, but I, I was conflicted. Uh, I, like, like, I honestly don't think I was doing anything immoral, but I was conniving. I was uh, very loose with the truth. I knew how to weave words in such a way that I could get away with things. And it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, rigorous honesty. Rigorous honesty is a funny thing. It's, it's like love and tolerance. What type of love doesn't include tolerance? Why do we need that word? Uh, what type of honesty isn't rigorous? What, you, know, I, I, you know, to me, it, it's all uh, a, a very high ideal to live up to. And so in, in a very short succession of time, I'm in two uh, custody battles with two boy meets girl on AA campuses. And um, I'm trying to figure things out. And one of my AA buddies, uh, you know, sort of pulls me by the sleeve and says, Joe, we're going to SLAA. And I thought, okay. And, uh, and we checked that out. And um, because one time that you, you know, have a relationship that doesn't work out, you can say, uh, you know, you know, it's not like I have a problem. It, I'm a, it was a series of bad breaks and serious misunderstandings. Uh, but here I had two of them. I, I knew it was me. And I knew this, this wasn't how conference speaker talks went. <laughs> you know, like, like I, I knew that 
that the people who were modeling AA style pro-social behavior, uh, it didn't involve this kind of calamity in my life in double digit sobriety. So I went to my first uh, SLAA meeting and I, I admitted, yes, I, I've got a problem. This is a, uh, uh, you know, I, I definitely uh, have this. I'm gonna deal with it my own way. They seem to have no sense of humor. And uh, it just was uh, like the meetings were very uncomfortable. And um, uh, I, I, I stopped going. And, and that's before I had HIV. So by the time I'm back there, I'm HIV positive, herpes, of course, who didn't have herpes in the 80s, you know, like, and I, I just, I, I was actually quite fortunate in 1996 when I was diagnosed with HIV, it was pretty much a death sentence. And I, I felt I deserved it. You fly with the crows, you get shot at. And I was the architect of my own misfortune. And um, uh, I, I just, I, all of my activity was creating calamity and the calamity caused me to seek relief. And I sought relief through anything. Uh, you know, if, uh, if I was not being sexually active, I, I would uh, uh, eat food that gave me comfort and pleasure. I would uh, do things that gave me fun and pleasure. I, I, I say that I've never had a hobby because anything I ever do, I turn into a second career. Uh, you know, I played guitar to relax and, you know, uh, recorded a record and started a radio show, right? Like, like and that wasn't relaxing. <laughs> None of that was relaxing. You know, I, 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 I started jogging to get rid of the restless energy when I was new in sobriety and ran two full marathons not relaxing, right? That's not, you know, that's not, you know, casual sports. And um, so I have a hard time doing things a little bit. And so this whole period of my sort of 30s, 40s, trying to find out what is my value system and what, you know, where, where do I fit in and, and, and what do I believe are my values? I, I, I started to develop them in AA. I started to become trustworthy. AA in the larger recovery community, adult children of alcoholics, uh, CODA, uh, well, pre-CODA was like Al-Anon, uh, adult children of alcoholics. And uh, I, I, was, I was like totally invested in those things, trying to, again, transcend my human experience and and be free of all of this stuff instead of just taking responsibility for it and reining it in. So I spent a, a lot of my, uh, you know, sort of best years um, second guessing myself, never feeling good enough, uh, never enjoying the moment, uh, always feeling judged. Uh, and, you know, there was this constant uh, weight and pressure and, and some of that stuff I just aged out of. Um, I, I, I chose a life of solitude for a while. I actually got involved in a relationship, boy meets girl on secular AA meeting. And Lisa and I formed a, 
neither of us had been in a, even a three-year relationship and we were together for 12 years. And uh, she's chosen a life of, uh, it's very solitary, very Buddhist, very non-materialistic and uh, um, uh, no indulgences, including she's celibate. So, uh, so during the pandemic, I was too. And I, I still hid between the guise of Joe and Lisa because I didn't want any sexual attention. I don't even know that I do now. I, I'm still sort of, sort of, you know, finding that out. Like, uh, you know, sure, I, I got it in me, but you know, I just the uh, eight hours of bullshit isn't worth the eight seconds anymore. It's just it's the drama that I I don't have a stomach for, and I'm happy to sort of go anywhere, do anything, be open minded, but it's got to be very authentic. It's got to be very honest. It's got to be very uncomplicated. And I, I don't treat any of the sort of sexual proclivities I indulged in as, as wrong or incorrect, as long as you're being as honest with you can, as you can with people. Uh, but I don't, I don't miss it, and I don't seek it any more than I miss alcohol. I love my sobriety. My sobriety includes a certain type of sexual sobriety. Process addiction isn't like uh, substance abuse where you can just say no to everything and that's your sobriety. So, um, uh, you know, finding that balance and being open to, you know, adaptation is really what it's about. It's way harder than just not drinking. Uh, but I, I don't feel uh, uh, constrained. I, I feel very free in my sobriety today. Uh, thanks for hanging out with me, everybody. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joe. That was amazing. And to wrap everything up, this gentleman's been very excited to be here. I've been chasing him down for quite some time. So <laughs> drop some knowledge on us. Uh, Mr. Mike, Mustache Mike. There you go. <laughs> hey, y'all. What's going on? My name is Mustache Mike, and I... Uh, fucking belong here. I am super excited, like Marsha said. She only had to like text me like 17 times and call me four times for me to get a response. Story of my life. But um, I'm really, really glad to be here. And I'm really stoked. Like this is one of my like biggest passions is like talking about sex and sobriety because no one fucking does it. And it's really important. And by the way, I will say fuck a lot and I'm gonna fucking keep doing it. So uh, welcome to the shit show, because this is my life. And I'm here to talk about it and talk about yours because I think everything that brought us here uh, brought it for a reason. Whatever image or view of a higher power you have that works for you, that brought you here, like I think it's important that each and every one of you came here um, and said this was important and you showed up for yourself today in your sobriety. You showed up for yourself, you showed up for others. Um, and that's what we do here. Um, I think it's... Uh, a really big deal that we have this community because I don't know about you, but for most of my life, I've been searching for a community that never accepted me and never loved me and never showed me how to love myself unconditionally because I was told all my life that like, this is Jesus and he unconditionally loves you, like, except with all of these conditions. Um, and like that didn't work for me. And so learning to make something that does work for me in my recovery, that does keep me sober um, has been uh really fucking hard um but it's been really worth it every every time i do the things that the either the book tells me or my sponsor or my friends in recovery that show me how to love myself better um those those are the things that like spark my real joy in my life 
and this is one of those things of just talking about you know where I've been and and uh, uh, I have to remind myself to like breathe. I literally wrote it on a post-it note to breathe because I get going really fast and learning to just be and just talk to you guys because um, I'm excited you're here. So I'm just going to focus on Marshall a lot. And even though there's like 50 other people, but uh, I am really glad because like this is kind of what I want to do with my life, maybe. I don't know. We'll see what happens because sobriety can take you anywhere. Um, and like our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, but that we are like powerful beyond belief. So I kind of know that in my heart, um, but I'm excited to do it and get to practice it and it won't be perfect. But I'm just going to tell you all what it was like for me because I'm just a scared little boy that's learning not to be sober and to trust my higher power every day. Um, and it's really hard, it's really uncomfortable, and it's really weird, and it's not normal for me, but I'm doing it um, because I was raised in a household that was, like, great. They were fantastic. My parents loved me a lot, sure. Uh, I was raised in Northern California, in Santa Rosa, um, and uh, my folks were, they were so great. Uh, I say this because, like, my mom was borderline personality disorder. She's fucking crazy. Um, so, like, super crazy emotional. My dad, on the other hand, uh, has Asperger's syndrome. So super autistic and very black and white and logical. So I learned these extremes in life. I learned black and white and they're like crazy overwhelming emotions. And I land somewhere awkwardly in the middle and trying to figure that out has sucked. Um, on top of that, uh, my older brother, Big Steve, he um, is mentally handicapped. So he um, is mentally retarded as global apraxia, which is an auditory verbal mental disconnect and has autism. So um, I've been going into this. I recently uh, found out that I'm an adult child of dysfunction, like add it to the list of shit because uh, um, about the age of eight, I became the older brother. Um, and that was a big deal because uh, I don't think I skipped it in the beginning, but like, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm a sex and love addict. I'm a fantasy, validation, intrigue, romance codependent, anorectic, and huge obsessive, and adult child of alcoholism and dysfunction. So like, I got a whole fucking list. So if any of those things relate to you, fucking take it. Like I say that at meetings now and it's ridiculous because everyone's just like, I'm an alcoholic and then they move on. And I got a whole list of things, but I'm like, it matters to me and it relates to me. So fuck it. I'm going to try and work on this. And if that you have a problem with that, like, please don't talk to me about it because I will cry and I don't want it to be awkward and I'd like everyone to like me all the time. And if everyone could just tell me that every 45 seconds, I'll be okay. Um, Cause I'm a huge codependent. But uh, as a kid, I learned that, like I learned that my, uh, if you know the Enneagram, I'm a type nine, I'm a peacemaker. I'm like the person that thinks if I can hold everything around me and make it okay all the time. And if everyone else is okay, then I'm okay. And I will sacrifice all of me to make that happen because it needs to happen because I am not okay. But if I can make everything else okay, then maybe I can be okay. Um, and that people pleasing worked when I was a kid. It worked. I did hold the family together. I was the older brother. I was that old soul, the gifted child, all that shit. Um, it works when you're a kid, but it doesn't work when you're an adult. And like, that's what these programs teach us is that like these were trauma responses. These were coping mechanisms that we needed to have because we weren't okay. And I didn't feel loved and I didn't feel valued and I didn't feel wanted and I didn't feel okay. When I did all those things, when I, when I was full on in the codependency, that's when I kind of felt okay. And, and I did that for a long time. And 
I was the perfect kid. Like I grew up as an evangelical in the covenant church. Um, we were like just shy of speaking in tongues, but like more so about like fruits of the spirit and shit like that. So like, I was very much like, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. That was my life. Uh, I went to a Christian school by my own choice. Like I wanted to do that because I had a secret and I needed to be the perfect fucking kid that could hold my family together, that could convince God to love me, that could do all these things because I, I, I needed it because I wasn't okay. And so I decided to go off to a Christian college here in Colorado. And this is where I'm at today in Denver. And uh, it's like one of the top five most conservative schools in the country. Um, I basically went down the voting list like last week and everything they said to vote for, I did the opposite of because they're crazy conservative. And I thought that was funny. Um, but uh, so I've changed in my life, but uh, I, that's where I was out there. And I started, um, it started falling apart. Like it wasn't working. I tried harder and harder to make God love me, to be okay, to make sure everyone around me was okay. And it wasn't working. And a friend's convinced me to go to therapy. And so I started going to therapy and I got closer and closer to the secret that I had that couldn't come out. Like it, it, you don't understand. Like my life would fall apart. Like everything would collapse. Like there's no way I can't have this be, I can't have this be alive because if I keep it crushed down in, in, in the depths of my soul, then like it won't ruin my life because I know it's going to ruin my life. And in therapy, I started teasing that apart and, and realizing And I first came out and said, I, I, uh, I struggle with same sex attraction, which is the way we said it of like, it's okay kind of be gay as long as you don't act on it. And that worked for like a hot minute, but not really. But uh, one thing led to another in the uh, financial collapse in 2008, uh, 2009, when I was in college, I couldn't go back. And so I'd started coming out a little bit and then it all got taken away from me and I had to go back home and I had no friends and no support and no one that loved me and everything was falling apart and I was fighting with my parents and I just ran. I ran away. I started cowboying uh, up in the immigrant wilderness up by Yosemite. I ranched up in Wyoming in the middle of fucking nowhere. If you know where Laramie is, it's even further than that. Like middle of nowhere because I was like, I have to get away from Denver because Denver is where I like, uh, you know, I do gay things. And I needed to get away from that. And so I ran as far as I could. And uh, I had this super toxic masculinity in my mind that like, if I could just pull myself up by my bootstraps and be a tough guy, then it like might be okay if I was a little bit gay. And so I ran and ran and I ran up into the oil field in North Dakota. And I worked up there in the 2013 oil boom. And it was like 40,000 men. And I went up and I had all these roommates and they were like, drinking on like a Tuesday. I'm like, who the fuck drinks on a Tuesday? That's crazy. Who does that? Cut to six weeks later. That was me. Full on alcoholism. Like when I took that drink, I was okay for a little bit. And so I ran with that. Jack Daniels was my very first boyfriend and I went nuts. I went absolutely crazy. Thank whoever that I got kicked out of there because I got my first DUI. Then I came back to Denver and then I got my second DUI. And, and that's about the time that I started realizing that like this was a big problem. Like I knew it was a problem for a while, but I couldn't admit it. And uh, it was finally ruining my life. And actually the very first AA meeting I went to was a free thinkers meeting, which is crazy. Like, look at that circle, full circle. Um, but it's really cool to be here because I went with my parents and I was just 
bawling the whole time and they hated it. They didn't want to be there. It was just, my life was so fucking ruined because of all my drinking and I didn't want to stop. So I would just lie and say I was going to AA meetings and go to the liquor store instead, you know, like we do, uh, cause we're addicts and that's what we do. But, um, I, I finally got to the place in 2019, December 10th of 2019 is my, uh, sobriety date when I actually kicked it. I went to an outpatient rehab. So in less than one month, I have three years of sobriety from drugs and alcohol, which is fucking nuts. Um, and, but wait, there's more because that was great and all, but that was like, step one is like, don't drink. Um, and I realized almost exactly a year ago to the day, I went to my very first slaw meeting because even though I wasn't drinking and I wasn't using, like, I still wasn't okay. I was insane. I, it all started coming together when I got this boyfriend, Patrick, and, uh, uh, it was super healthy kidding it wasn't it was really really bad it was super codependent it was awful and it was ruining my life but like I couldn't drink and I couldn't use but I felt okay when like my obsession was at its most and I latched on but if I could merge with this other person that like I could be okay because I'm not because maybe if they would say the right things if they would fuck me in the right way if they would say the things that I needed them to say that I would be okay because I wasn't okay on my own and I needed it and if you were to take that away from me I'll fucking kill you because I needed it don't ask me to stop doing that. And then I went to SLAW and I realized that that was something that I needed to look at. And I couldn't have handled that when I was still drinking, but like, thank my higher power that like I got broken down and got to a place of enough pain that I became that scared little boy again. So a thing that I do that I talk about um, is I refer to myself as Mike. Um, when I do inner child work, I talk about Mikey um, and it's really vulnerable to say in front of like 50 people, that's what I do. But like Mikey is here and he is with me and he has real valid emotions and he is scared and he is innocent and he is me. Um, I only met my six power, my higher power about six months ago and uh, I refer to him as Michael. So Michael is my self-actualized self in the future. That's me at 35, that's sober, that has his life together, that's doing it, that's okay. That doesn't only exist in the future, but exists now within me because I am Mikey's father and I don't know how to be a fucking father. My dad didn't teach me. He didn't know how. His Asperger's, I, my whole life, just wanted him to say he's fucking proud of me. And I couldn't get that. I just wanted to know that I was loved. And that's all that Mikey wants is just to be loved and be okay. And I am in charge of taking care of him now. And it is my duty to do that. But I don't have to do it alone. And I have my higher power, Michael, to show me, to teach me. And it's really weird because it's kind of like he's myself. He's also a higher power. He's also my god of sorts. Um, I'm also dating him. And that's weird. Um, like we fucked once it was crazy and weird and I don't care what you think about it it worked for me because it was um, emotional and it was intense and like that's a thing that I do is I correlate intensity with intimacy um, and I have a really hard time with close male friendships because um, I get those things confused and so I, I build up all this intensity around my partner my person that I if I can make it all super fast so like I go from zero to a hundred in like the first 24 hours, like if you have signs of liking me and I like you, it's like game on, I can do this. I can be the perfect 
best boyfriend that you've ever had. And if you say you're like, I'm not emotionally available to date right now, that's my cue to be like, awesome. If I can convince you that you want to date me, that'll prove double time that like I'm good enough and I'm awesome. So let's do this shit. Um, and it turns out that doesn't work out great because I talk about them like we dated for like six years. Um, it was six weeks because I'm a crazy person. Um, but that that's what brought me into slaw and that's what brought me to a place where I could look at this and where I could um realize that like I needed to change or I would die and that's what I think a lot of us here realize that like our addiction and it doesn't mean like a happy quick death right now it's like a slow painful death and I realized that this pain I couldn't endure any longer and I needed to change and so I started last year on October 10th is my slaw day. So I just had my one year in slaw and um, it's like changed my life. Uh, on this on the same day, I, the three different things, I, I went to my first slaw meeting. I uh, got a therapist, highly recommend. If you don't have a therapist, fucking get one. Um, and, and I started going to in-person gay AA meetings in Denver. I live just like 30 minutes outside of Denver. So pretty close, like up towards the mountains. And I like ran away and lived in the mountains, but I realized like I need connection and I need people. And so I started going to these meetings and like, I went to this thing called the Rocky Mountain Roundup, which was a big sober event that I went to. And I was terrified the week before Patrick broke up with me and I was losing it. And I went to this meeting and got a flyer and uh they were like the rocky mountain roundup and i and i i went and i was terrified i was so scared the whole time just you know when you can like feel tears right behind your eyes and you can see it and people when they look at you and like hi are you okay and you're like immediately start crying that was me all day and and i went and i went to my first coda meeting and i realized like oh shit like i'm not alone like other people deal with these things too like i am not so terminally unique like my sponsor always tells me like you're not special like in a good way like i'm unique and i'm loved in my own way but like i'm not special like i'm not the only one feeling this um and i started started digging into it and my favorite piece from the slaw literature in this uh great book here um is it said that we found that we needed an indefinite period of alone time with which to learn and understand our disease so as not to hurt ourselves in the arms of another lover meaning that i needed a time of withdrawal to not do the things that I had been doing in order to change and be different and learn how to love myself. And I was like, there's no way, like, there's no fucking way this is gonna work. This is so stupid, but I showed up and I came to those meetings and I talked about where I was honestly at. And for the first time, like a group of people told me and they meant it that like, Mike, you're loved. And I, I say the same thing to everyone here, that you are loved and you are valuable and you're important and you're special and you're loved and you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And your pain is real and your feelings are valid, but they are not facts. And this shit is really hard and I'm not great at it yet, but I'm so glad that I'm better than I used to be. And so having all these things floating around in my head that like I... And, and so broken and unlovable. And I'm like, I'm now changing those things like in the core of my being. And I still go to those meetings and don't feel good enough. Like I got laid off like eight weeks ago and it wrecked me. Like I felt so inadequate and so broken and so stupid and so everything like that. But like my higher power had a plan and I hated it because I knew it. 
And I'm like, great, something great's gonna come out of this. Awesome. But like, you gotta go through that pain and you gotta break yourself. And he pulled me apart and ripped out these roots that went so deep into me and pulled them out. And rather than like pull myself up by my bootstraps, I like listened to Michael saying that we can do this with compassion and love. And that's what I did. And it worked. Like, that's what's crazy is that like in all of this pain and brokenness and addiction, like there is life, things do get better. And so if you're new to this program, like there is life, there is light, it does get better. And I know it doesn't feel that way, but it truly, truly does. And it hurts and it sucks. And it's going to require a lot of tears and a lot of hard work and a lot of hard looking at yourself in the mirror. And that was really hard. I hated looking at myself in the mirror because I just hated myself. I was so fucking worthless. Like, but I don't talk to myself that way anymore. At least I'm trying to. And it's, it's a daily thing that I'm trying to learn how to do. Thank higher power that like, I've got these rooms to come to and learn how to love myself and be taught by others that like, I can be loved. And my sponsor has been an incredible man that took me through AA and the 12 steps. Um, he's also in CMA because crystal meth wasn't a, wasn't a long part of my story, but it was a very deep part of my story. Um, meth's a hell of a drug. Don't do it. And if you have, I fucking get it. And not doing it is really hard, but just like in the way that like meth activates those things, like my obsession does the same thing. It, it sparks that part of my brain that's just so intense and learning to like accept that, that it's valid, but that I can do that on my own and I can validate myself first. That's crazy. Um, and it's real. And I don't care if you believe me, but it has worked for me. And so I, I think that there's, there's a lot to be said, but um, I think it's my time, Marsha. Is it roughly about that time? Can I keep going? I, I'll talk about this forever. How how much? No, you tell me how much time I have. You can go for another five five or so minutes. Perfect. Because I am not done yet. I got shit to say. Like, I, this is me. And it's really hard, like, showing you guys right now, like, this is really me. This is the man that I'm supposed to be. This is the man that I've always wanted to be, as someone who speaks truth and love and life to people. And I never thought, like, I can't do that because I don't love myself. But, like, fuck it. I'm learning how to do it now. And I, I talk to my sponsor and I just get so wrapped up that I'm like, how, how can you love me so unconditionally? And like, when I first shared my story at a meeting, he was there and I just looked at him the whole time and through all these tears and brokenness and saying out loud, he spoke up in front of everyone saying, Mike, I am proud of you and I do love you and you are worth everything. And he said that in front of a room full of people, which is all that Mike has ever wanted to hear. And he did that. Like, I got that because of recovery. And it meant a lot to me. And it still does. And now I can go forward because I've always been like, Chris, how do, how do, how do I pay you? I can't pay you back. Like, what, what can I do for you? And he says, you can do it for someone else. And that's what I intend to do.
And it's really hard because I sponsored someone for uh, three days is all it lasted. Wasn't a great experience, um, but I did it and I can do it again. And I'm learning that part of my story is giving back because what I what I really feel in my heart of hearts at the core of who I am in this lifetime, I know that the reason that I went through all of this shit and all of this crazy fucked up everything that was my like childhood is that I needed to learn and be broken and brought to this place where I can spread the word that like there's hope and there's life and there's recovery but it takes a lot of hard work and it takes going to meetings and showing up for yourself and looking at yourself in the mirror and talking to a sponsor and doing a fourth step and getting all the shit that you've buried inside you like this festering wound like I always felt like I had this broken arm that I just like hid behind my back and it was infected and it was awful and it hurt and it was wounded but I didn't think if I showed anyone that what the fuck are they gonna do like I just I'd rather pretend that I'm okay. And when I finally did show it, I, I brought it into the light and like the shame died. Like shame can't exist in the light. It can't exist when there's real, true, unconditional love. And like, shit, man, that's fucking crazy that like, I, I never thought these parts of me could be healed and like they are, and it's not done and I'm not perfect. But like I show up for myself on a daily basis and um, some really amazing things happen. Like um, I'm dating someone right now uh, and I don't call him my boyfriend yet, which I usually do on like the second day top. Like I'm big on saying like, babe, 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 babe. That's all like, I, I just want to hear that because it means so much to me. And so I say it really quick, um, but I'm learning with my slot program, how to slow down. Like my sponsor said, it's like before I didn't even have brakes in my car. And now I do, and I can actually pump them and I can take it slow and I can, I can, I can show up as myself. Like this is the first time I've done that where like Mike is fully present, like me, not in spite of my flaws, but because of them. And like, he likes that. And like more than that, <laughs> I like Mike for the first time and I love him. And I, I love Michael a whole lot and he loves me and he's been the first man, person, thing, spirit, energy, whatever, to love me back and show me how to love myself in a way that truly matters and truly changes my life. And that's really weird and I don't like it. And it's weird to say things like that, but like it makes a big deal because it, it's a lot of real healing. So like I get to be in a relationship and like, I, I, I feel like I got off and didn't talk about sex enough. I talk about sex all the time. I love it. But like last night we didn't have sex and I was okay. Like it didn't, I didn't need it. I wasn't craving it. I didn't do it. I was able to just show up as me and do that. And I'm able to like, uh, shout out to my friend, David. I actually go to a leather fetish and kink meeting because that's a part of my life. Like wearing leather, uh, used to be like me getting into my drug mode, um, and like drinking mindset. And, and now I wear it like armor. And I get to go out and be kinky and have sex and, and be excited and be myself and not have to put a drug in my body. And I get to do that as me. And I get to say, like, I am an ethical slut because I fucked half of Denver and I will continue to do so. But no longer do I do it because I need to. I do it because I can. And, like, I think that all of us can do that. We can find out what matters to you because you might be a person that 
wants monogamy and wants that one person. And I like do want that one person, but I also like to fuck other people. So like, I want to do that as well and figure out how to show up as myself, like my most authentic real self and how to do that because it, it doesn't, my first, we say like, you're not in charge of your first thought, but you're in charge of your second thought. So if my first thought is doing something and it, it's all wrapped up in codependency and obsession and all that, like I can take it in with like a curious, loving understanding, be like, I wonder why I'm feeling that way. Maybe I should uh, talk about that shit. And like, I do it because before I like thought of that maybe, but like now I actually talk about it and have the choice and the agency to like make different choices and do things differently, which like in my drinking and drugging, like that wasn't, I didn't have any choices. I just did the thing. Like I just was fucked up. And now I'm able to make a choice that like, what does Mike want to do? And like, I've never known in my life, what the fuck does Mike want to do? Like, who does he want to fuck? Who does he want to sleep with? Who does he want to engage in relationship with? And like on the reverse for things like having sex, like I've also learned how not to like, my best friend this summer was a newcomer, like six months sober. I was in love with him, of course, on like the first day, but like we don't fuck newcomers. And it was so hard to do that because I was close to him and wanting to get more close. And I, I couldn't realize I'm like, uh, and then they kissed and then they fucked. Like, that's what happens. Like, that's what you do with friends. And I'm trying so hard not to do that. And every week it was a struggle. And I talked about it. And I told my sponsor for the first time I can say I'm so fucking proud because I did it. I didn't fuck him and I still haven't. And I get to have that like level of love and intimacy with other men in my life and other people in recovery and not have it be sexual. Like I'm pulling those things apart slowly, but surely like I'm untangling them, but like it takes time and like our sex lives are so intricate, but they're also quite simple of when you know who you are and know who you're loved by and that you've got a higher power that's on your side you have choices to make and you can choose to love who you want and how you love them and how you show up for yourself and how you show up for others and it's really hard but it's really worth it and i hope that's what you get from my message is that it is really worth it and it's really powerful and it takes time and you will fuck up and that's okay you're still loved and you are still valuable and you were exactly where you're supposed to be in coming to this meeting. It's what your higher power wanted for you when you did that and you showed up. And I hope you keep showing up for your recovery because I sure as fuck am gonna, because it matters and it's worth something and you are worth something. You are worth the world. And I hope that you can learn how to better love yourself today and tomorrow and all of your days because it's worth it. And if you need help with that, I'm here. Your friends are here. We're all here for each other because we can't do it alone. Like I've tried to do it alone and, and show up for yourself because you matter and you're important and you are loved. Thank you so much for holding space for me and having this time for me to talk and ramble on about all this shit. But thank you so much. And I love you all. And I hope you can love yourself today a little better. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. That was awesome. You're amazing. Yeah, I love you. Absolutely love you. Yes. Um, before I, um, before we wrap this up, I just wanted to put a question out there. Um, and, and Mike, you touched on it. I was going to ask everybody the same question and you've already touched on it about the whole, it's about, you know, the monogamy thing and, 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 you know, where do you sit on that? And it's about one partner. Is it about more? Is it about like, how do you deal 
with all of that as you're going through sobriety and the feelings and the emotions are coming up and they're coming from everywhere and the feelings aren't back but you want to just fucking rip yourself apart and all that stuff how do you deal with that is it even an issue uh, and stuff like that that goes on within you and, and you know um you know along the lines of the whole you know this meeting is about sex so how how do you not use the the whole substituting thing because i know myself with me you know i got a, i got a little after 10 years 20 years of no relationship and 10 years of no contact with another person i got a little taste i got a little taste and i tell you i want to fucking run with that i will fuck anybody that walks right past me right now because i've got a taste of it and i want more and i'm trying not to act out i'm trying my best not to act out but i'm watching porn more than i've ever had before and all that stuff and what do i do with that well how do you deal with shit like that you know as you're going through so Joe, do you have any um, any uh, any input on that? And then we'll go to Lyra and then Mike, you can wrap it up and then we will wrap up the whole meeting. Oh, sorry. There we go. Uh, yeah, you know, it comes down to the whole idea of taking inventory is to find who I am and what my values are. I remember being part of the uh, BDSM community, bondage, domination, and I would, I, I would dom the dominators and I would sub the uh, subordinates because I, I just, I didn't like all their rules, all the fucking words and all the fucking rules and all the fucking clothes that everything had to be just like, I wanted spontaneity and it was so rigid. I just, uh, you know, I, I loved the action, but I just hated the, uh, I mean, it was like you had an owner's manual the size of, uh, uh, a car owner's manual to participate in. And this whole idea of this sort of uh, monogamous world is just a, a Christian idea. And, and it, it, it works for people because it gives structure. And some people need, crave structure. Other people crave spontaneity. The most healthy people have a balance of both of structure and spontaneity. Too much structure makes me rigid. Too much spontaneity makes me chaotic. I have to find a balance. And I think everybody does. Good luck, Marsha. Thanks very much, Lolyra. Thank you very much for your question, Marsha. Oh, honestly, I was sitting here thinking like how many prostitutes think about Am I going to settle down someday? Am I going to find, you know, the John who keeps coming around? Am I going to settle down? Am I going to have a family? Uh, am I going to be content? Or am I going to keep spinning this hamster wheel of, I don't really know what to call it because it, it's, it's not just the slut life for me. It was, it was my income too. And um, it almost killed me. By, by the time that I had to give it up, I was passing out in positions and waking up in new positions and having no memory of which John came that day or if he even played by the rules or what did I even get paid? How many pills are on the dresser? Um, so for me, the the polygamous route the uh the poly amory the poly sexuality it was not going to work for me ever not long term it served a purpose it served a function 
Um, and it also helped me identify who I am and what I deserve, what I can tolerate. So it wasn't all so bad. It came with a heavy cost. Absolutely. No doubt about that. The cost was steep. But I learned so much out of my hooking and whoring days. Um, I was even one of those intellectual uh, cybernetic whores. I got onto those like uh, second life uh simulation games and oh I hoard up there too um it all just served a purpose and sobriety helped me forget that that was a way to serve that purpose sobriety helped me uh forget about financial instability and allow me to focus on you never needed the money. You don't. You liked the attention. You liked the approval. You liked being appreciated and loved. But that's not going to do it for you anymore. So <clears throat> um, monogamy was the only way out for me. And I'm loving it. <laughs> I can see that you're loving it. All right, Mike, you got two minutes to wrap us up and then I'm going to turn the meeting back over to Jim. Love it. Love the question. Um, I think kind of what I was talking about, it, it really comes down to being able to make choices in our life that before we didn't have any choice, like we had to do what we did. So I grew up in that Christian um, world of like monogamy and that was just ingrained so deeply in my head and then I feel like when I came out onto like the gay scene of like the partying and the bars and the sex in the front like it swung like I said with my parents I'm good at extremes and back and forth and like I know how to do monogamy but now I want to fuck everyone and everything and like on my fourth step some people like oh I had a whole page of people and like I had 237 on my first one like that was, and I, uh, th that used to bring a lot of shame to me. And now I'm like, that's me. That's what I do. Like, I like fucking, I'm good at it. And I enjoy doing it. Like this summer I got to go to the Eagle, which is like a leather bar in, in New York city and fuck on the dance floor. And it was awesome and fun. And it felt sober and healthy. And I loved it. And I plan on doing it again. And so like, again, oscillating between these things and living to learn in the gray that we have choices because I used to think that like, no, monogamy isn't real. You know, that's all bullshit. But like, no, it does, because each one of us has a choice of what do we actually like, like when we do that work and look at ourselves in the mirror of like, who am I and what do I want? Is that me activating my addiction, needing to fuck all these people? Or is that just part of who I am? And and we get to make that choice. And it's beautiful. And like I said, there's this book called The Ethical Slut that's amazing and so good that is a intro to it and is exactly what we're talking about. And I love it, love it, love it, um, because it helps us explore what does it mean to us? And that love isn't a finite resource. Love is infinite. And you can choose to express that in a lot of ways. And none of them are better or worse. They're just different for each one of us. Just like our addiction comes differently. Uh, sobriety lets us make that choice for ourselves. And I hope that you all take the time to learn for yourself what it means to you and how to have sex and how to do it in healthy, loving ways. So thank you for showing up today. 
Awesome. And thank you all so much, Lyra, Joe, and, uh, and Mike. Um, thank you so much. Um, you all resonated with me so on so many different levels. And I just really appreciate your vulnerability, um, your transparency, um, your complete honesty. And uh, I, I love you all so much. So thank you uh, as well for everybody who showed up here. Please remember that part three is coming up. And I'm going to turn the meeting back over to Jim. And uh, we're going to go into uh, the sharing. So there you go. Thank you, family. Love you all. Oh, keep your head out of your butt and do the next right thing. All right.